I'm going to be reading uh, Exodus 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There should be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Excellent. Thank you, Noah. All right. So before we begin, we're going to go ahead and pray, because even though that this is my third time preaching, there is still a huge weightiness coming up here and standing on stage, and as awkward as it is for me to speak in front of people, it's not really about that. It's about the fact that I'm preaching God's word, and I'll be held accountable for that. So if you could, just please bow with me, uh, and we'll just go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a good and awesome God. I thank you so much for the work that you're doing in our lives. I thank you for this body of fresh water and and Lord, how you've just used us to not only encourage and exhort one another, but also how you've used us in our own separate ways to impact those around us, Lord. This morning, Lord, I, I pray that I would be able to preach your word with boldness, with truth, and with humbleness, Lord. It's not about me or my ideas, it, it's about you um, and your Holy Spirit using me to preach your truth. So this morning, I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that all of our hearts, including mine, would um, just be softened to hear your truth. Keep me humble. Allow me to have recollection for my sermon, Lord. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, we trust you in your holy life-giving name. Amen. All right. So Exodus 11. We just read it. Uh, Thank you, Noah. That was very well done. Not one stutter. That would have not how not been how it would have gone for me. Obviously, <laughs> uh, so funny. Okay. So, as I've been praying and just studying this passage, and honestly, I've been talking with people, just kind of like, okay, strengths and weaknesses of our church. Like, what are areas that you feel confident, and areas that you don't feel so confident, or that need growth, and. Uh, no one's actually specifically said this, but I've noticed it as I have been having conversations with people, and what I've gathered, it's an awesome thing, 
our church trusts our elders to properly or have a proper exegesis, which literally just means a critical examination and interpretation of a text, a religious text specifically for the Bible, right? Our church, our congregation, trusts our pastors to be doing that correctly as they're preaching. But one thing that I've noticed in those conversations is they don't necessarily trust themselves to be doing that as well. Because we're not all Bible scholars, right? And I'm up here saying, I'm not a scholar. Never have been. I had a learning disability, apparently. I found that out about a year ago that I was in special ed. Um, I've got dyslexia. You know, I I struggle with reading. Um, I'm not the smartest guy around. But that does not hinder me from being able to understand the truth in God's word. And it's because God is able to teach me about himself and his character. So this morning, I've got sweet, like just a sweet, nice little passage of 10 verses. And to just encourage and exhort all of us as a body to do this, I wanted to actually walk through my initial exegesis, my initial notes in this passage. And then from there, then we can go ahead and I can share what the Lord taught me in that process of interpreting a scripture. So, let's get started, I guess. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon you, or bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he, gets, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Pretty basic. Um, obviously, the Lord is going to be carrying out another plague on Egypt. We've walked through nine of them so far as a congregation. But one thing I noticed in reading this, for the last two plagues, there's no further instruction of God telling Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. That instruction is now gone. Just like JT mentioned last week, no more let my people go. He says, I'm going to carry out this plague. And he continues that in, in the 10th plague here. He says, I'm going to carry out one more plague, and then he will let you go. Pretty basic, just a little observation. 11.2, provision for the preceding journey and worship of the Lord. That was my observation. Verse 2 says, speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. My observations in that, God was providing for them as they were going to be, you know, exodus out of the land of Egypt. He, he provided the means for them to worship, to worship him appropriately for what he has done. We see also the hearing of the people that phrase kind of caught me off guard because it's not how I speak. So I looked it up in a couple other transla- translations. Hearing or speaking to the ears of the people. This is actually the first time in the entire narrative when I actually started looking at it. This is the first time in the narrative where Moses actually intentionally communicates with the people of Israel. This whole time he's been doing things on behalf of the people of Israel. But this is the first time he goes and communicates to the people of Israel to go do something. And then every man, every man and every woman ask of their neighbor. 
I was like, huh, that's interesting because they're in the land of Goshen. How my mind worked, that's slave land. So why would you go ask your neighbor for gold or silver? Because they're slaves with you, so they probably don't have any. Upon further research, I realized they lived in Goshen, obviously, um, but they lived among a native Egyptian people called the Semites. So they were actually living with Egyptians in the land of Goshen, yes, as slaves, but that, that's why they could go and ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for gold and silver because they were Egyptians and they actually did have wealth. 11.3, uh, it's just the fulfillment of God's promises to Moses at the burning bush. And for a cross-reference, you can go look at Exodus 3.12 and 21 and 22. That's really where that, that promise is instituted to Moses and God. Um, we also see in verse 3 that Moses is described as being very great. Um, he's very great be, because he was held in fearful awe by the Egyptians. The Egyptians, up until this point, by association, have suffered under Moses' hand. Every time he raises his staff or does something, hail, locusts, plagues, these people are, are struggling because of that. Um, so he was held in, in a fearful awe among the native Egyptians. Um, then moving on to 11.4, the phrase, about midnight eye. It was something I noticed. Every plague prior, Moses and Aaron were God's vessels. They kind of did God's bidding. Each plague prior required some action by them in some sense. Uh, the last plague, God carried out himself. Exodus 4.23, uh, in, in looking at this plague, I you know, I'm looking at my Bible and there's a little cross-references and everything. So I went back to Exodus 4.23 and in Exodus 4.23, it was actually the first plague threatened. This 10th plague was actually the first plague threatened. God said, I will kill Pharaoh's firstborn if he does not let your people go. And then nine plagues later, here he is saying, I'm gonna kill the firstborn of Egypt. Initially, that kind of caught me off guard. Um, why, why would God bring nine plagues prior to judge the nation of Egypt? Then the Lord, uh, you know, in reading and, and just trying to gather context, reminded me of Exodus twelve thirty eight, where it says, a multitude of people. I looked up multitude. It's not a multitude like in size. It's a multitude in, well, I guess it could be size as well, but it, it was a multitude meaning different kinds of people. It was not just Israelites. And I realized the prior nine plagues was an act of mercy by God. And I know that seems like kind of a reach, but the prior nine plagues brought more people in the land of Egypt to respond in obedient faith. Our God, while being just, while being wrathful towards sin and rebellion, simultaneously was merciful and long-suffering. The nine plagues elevated God's character 
The nine plagues showed who God was in his fullness. He wasn't just wrathful. He wasn't just just. He was also merciful, patient, and long-suffering. And then, of course, the thought goes, you know, because I'm a New Testament believer, meaning I'm not living in that time. It is a foreshadowing of the Gentiles being brought into the God's people. God's heart to reconcile mankind to right relationship with him. So verse 4 kind of blew me away. 11.5, it says, you know, plague will be carried out in all the land of Egypt. Whereas prior, there was a distinction between Egypt and the land of Goshen. The land of Goshen, the hail would not fall, the locusts would not attack. You know, all of those prior nine plagues, the land of Goshen was secluded from the plague. Then you come here and it says, like, the, the plague was declared over all the land of Egypt. And it was, again, in context, condemnation for all who were not found under the blood of the Lamb. A plague over all of Egypt, over, in analogy, all mankind. 11, 6 and 7, clear distinction made between those who were God's people and those who are not. And it says not a dog will growl or bark at like beast or man that is included in my people. Uh, We see 11.8, hot anger. Moses is greatly respected by the Jews and Egyptians alike. And we see him respond to Pharaoh's hardness of heart in hot anger. And it made me go, well, why? You know, like, he kind of should have expected it. I mean, God even tells him, Pharaoh's going to harden your heart and he won't let your people go. And yet, Moses still responds in hot anger. Why? Because he knew the condemnation that one man's choice brought on an entire nation. Does this sound familiar? By one man's choice, all are condemned? Those were just questions I asked myself. 11.9 All of this was for the purpose of glorifying God and making his sovereignty and character known throughout the land of Egypt and to his people and bringing his people to freedom or reconciliation. In 11.10 Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God. Like JT talked in uh, Exodus 9.17 Pharaoh exalted himself. That reminded me of uh, Romans 18 through 1, 18 through 21, really just a process of the hardening of a man's heart. And I'll just read it just so, because it's on my notes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I just, observation, sounds a lot like Pharaoh. (laughs) So, either way, that was my exegesis of the scripture. The intentional examination and interpretation of what I had seen. Now, in my process, I said, okay, Lord, teach me about you. Teach me about your character and show me. Reveal yourself to me in your word so that I can know you better. And he taught me four main things, four main truths. And so that's where we're going to we're gonna engage this morning. I, get, I have the privilege of sharing those with you all. One thing I would like to do in that sharing is he taught me the main truth in Exodus, but then I want to also take that and put it in New Testament context, right? Because we're not Israelites living in Egypt. We're believers living in this world. So I would like to do an Old Testament, New Testament comparison, and we're just going to walk through that together. The first truth that he showed me was the people who need salvation are slaves, Israelites were slaves under a cruel tyrant king, a man who claimed in or desired deity and oppressed God's people. When Moses confronted him to let his people go, let God's people go, he, respond, he responded with a prideful and hard heart. And he oppressed them all the more. Exercising his perceived power or uh, authority As I thought about that, I go, huh. Israel's condition as slaves under a cruel tyrant king is the literal condition of all mankind. It's the literal human condition. All are born into slavery, to sin, and captive under Satan's domain of darkness. Some references you can look at are Colossians 1.13, uh, 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26. We are unable to change our conditions in and of ourselves from the bondage that we experience. So our just, sovereign, and merciful God intervened. Even if we could meet our quotas, which we can't, we are still incapable to set ourselves free from our current situation. Apart from the person of Christ, we, by our own ability, are and will continue to be slaves to sin. And because of that, the the penalty for rejecting God's means of salvation is death. 11.5, we see condemnation of all who were not found under the blood of the Lamb the firstborn in all the land. That that constitutes that it included the Israelites. Though it didn't exempt them, they were the only ones given the instruction on how to be excluded from this plague. 
I said, you know, New Testament. There's a couple Old Testament passages in here. But we've got Proverbs 2.29. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am free from sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Church, the verdict has been given. Mankind is guilty. We were born in Adam and without being transferred from one kingdom to another, we will receive the condemnation, the wrath that comes because we are not in his people. But like I said, God in his mercy, in his love, and in his kindness toward mankind intervened. What does that intervention look like? The provision for God's means of salvation is through the blood of an acceptable sac- blood sacrifice. This is where I have to apologize to JT a little bit because I skipped ahead. So I'm going to do my best to not steal his thunder for next week, but my goodness, it's good stuff. I looked up, you know, and in, in reading, you know, the Passover and all of that, continuing past chapter 11, Passover, how do you generally think of it? We generally think of it as the angel of death passing over, right? That because they painted the, the blood on the lentil and the doorpost, he goes, oh, okay, not that house, not that one. Oh, there we go, that one. Get the firstborn there. I was like, huh, of course, I have to do my research, right? Passover, actually, when observed by Messianic Jews, the Passover, the blood on the lentil and the doorpost was not to keep God out, but an invitation to pass over the threshold and protect from within, that God would protect them from himself, I also looked up Hebrew because that word is used a lot. Hebrew, the definition of a Hebrew is one who traverses through a land or passes over or is passed over. Thought that was relatively interesting. In skipping ahead for context, we see God's people passed over or to be passed over, they had to follow specific instruction. It wasn't multiple ways of doing this. It wasn't even two ways. There was one way to observe Passover. There was only one way to invite God in to protect them from the wrath coming from himself. Church, is this not a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel? Christ, the blood of the Lamb, being sacrificed is our one way. And by faith, we can invite him into our lives. And in inviting him into our lives, 
he marks us as his own with the Holy Spirit an evidence just like the blood and he protects us from the coming wrath that he will bring upon this world because of sin Colossians 1 21 and 23 says in you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. But how do we accept Christ, right? How, how were the, Israel, or the people of God, how were they passed over? The application of God's means of salvation is through obedient faith. Exodus 11, 2 and 3, and stick with me, it's going to kind of seem like a little bit of jumping around, but... The provision of worship of the Lord post-exodus from Egypt. He asked, he, he, Moses tells the people, you know, whisper in their ears, speak to them, tell them to go ask their neighbors for gold and silver. Why? When you read through the book of Exodus, you see the institution of how to worship God appropriately. He set the temple, a place where he could live on earth until the time of Christ, a place where he came and dwelt among his people, those who had been reconciled to him. But there's obviously stipulations, right? God had them build a, a temple. He had them build everything to his specific requirements that this is what I will live in and this is what it needs to be made of and this is how it needs to be made. These are the dimensions and blah, blah, blah. He goes on and on. But he provided his people with the ability to worship him appropriately for the act of reconciliation that he has set them free in. He provided the sacrifices that they got to bring their livestock along. They're not just in the middle of the desert going, well, I guess it's going to be a snake today. No. He allowed them to leave with their livestock, with the riches, with the gold, the silver, the jewels, with the linens to make the robes. He allowed man, he allowed his people to worship him appropriately. So I was like, wow, that... Amazing. But then I realized something, and I was actually talking to my father over there, who is a pretty incredible man from my perspective. So we're talking about this, and you know, I'm kind of working through all of all of that with him, and he goes, You know, just dawned on me. Religion worships to be set free. Religion 
goes through the formalities and all of the stuff with the hope of being recognized as being set free from something. Faith is set free to worship. Notice that God provided the means for them to worship after by faith they walked out of Egypt. After he had already provided a way for them, he provided a way for them to worship him appropriately. And I went, that's incredible. Reminds me of Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Bondage, freedom, faith, worship. That's encouraging, and, but what are those promises? And how do I know that I can have faith in them? I've been working through the book of Hebrews, and it reminds me of this passage, and I can give you guys these passages later. You don't need to turn to them. I'll just read them, unless you want to, I guess. But Hebrews six thirteen through 18, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes of an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise that the unchangeable character or uh, of the unchangeable of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. Church, he's given us everything that pertains to life of godliness. We're living in freedom for those who are found in Christ. He's given us his Holy Spirit to guide and to teach. He's given us his word to teach us about him and his character, but also how to reflect him as his children, how to worship him appropriately with our lives. We have hope because of his promises, deriving from a covenant that he made with himself. He's unchangeable, he's true, he cannot lie. We have promises like Philippians 1.6 that says, he will be faithful to complete the work of Christ in you until the day of his return. 
Church, for those who are in Christ, he has set us free to worship him and he's also provided everything that it takes to worship him and the instruction of how to worship him appropriately. We can worship him in full confidence. Which interesting. Another fun word study. Confidence comes from the Latin word, Latin root word, confide. Con means with, and fide means faith. He has set us free to worship him in full faith, in full hope, in complete rest and peace that in his character he will not only be a just and right God, but he will also be merciful and patient and long-suffering. That his heart desires to reconcile mankind to right relationship with him. One, it glorifies his name, but let's be honest, in glorifying his name, does it not have incredible repercussions for our life? that we get to live with hope, that we get to live in freedom, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but he's transferred us from one kingdom to another. Church. I know it's a little 10 verses. It's very easy to skip over. And honestly, when he said Exodus 11, I was like, really? Come on. <laughs> That's like the, the filling the cup but not actually getting to drink it. You know, like that's not the good stuff. The Passover is the good stuff. To be able to engage scripture and have God show me his attributes and his characteristics, but also how those change my life. Not only how I see God, but also how I get to interact with him as a child who has been set free. As one who is no longer under bondage of sin, no longer worshiping to be set free, but getting to worship from the place of already being set free and thanking him with the way that I live my life to glorify his name because guess what? He's worthy. Scripture is an amazing thing. Sorry, I need a drink of water. I talk a lot, but my mouth is actually dry this time. So church, some, some take home stuff for us to actually engage with, to chew on, to study. And I would encourage you to go through Exodus 11, to study it yourselves, to allow the Lord to, to inform and renew your mind, to change your worldview, your perspective on him, his character, and how 
what he's done on our behalf changes our lives, changes our understanding of him. We live in a world that are slaves under the domain of darkness of Satan. We've been given the instruction to be set free. We know the God that has set us free for those who are in Christ. We know that that God is merciful and long-suffering while simultaneously being just and wrathful. And we've seen that wrath played out by example in Exodus on Egypt. Church, that wrath is coming again. Engage with those around you. If you don't know Christ, I would encourage you to get into the word of God. I would encourage you to engage with your friends who are believers. To understand that when Christ came, he came for the purpose of reconciling mankind. He did that through his blood sacrifice on the cross, but now he was raised again in new life. And in that new life, he has also raised us for who found in him who respond obediently by faith. And in that faith, we get to walk in a new life that glorifies God. And he's given us everything that pertains to godliness. He's given it everything that pertains to life. There is freedom found only one way and only one way and that person is Christ. Church, as we close honestly here today, it's not a super long sermon, but truthfully it doesn't need to be. It was 10 verses. And the whole point is the gospel. The elevation of Christ or God's character. And how that can engage our lives. I hope that this morning it was not a bunch of information. But I hope that you can see how God's word is living how it teaches us and informs us and renews our mind so that we can continue worshiping him with our lives. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. So if you would, please just bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you. <laughs> thankful for who you are, thankful for your word and your Holy Spirit that helps us engage and interpret your word. Lord, I pray that we would never feel like we have a full understanding of who you are, that we would never graduate from the gospel. Lord, I thank you that my ability is not to be fancy that my ability is not that I'm an awesome speaker. And I thank you that, 
that's not what it's about, that it's about Christ. That's about his gospel and your truth. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just continue to allow our hearts to engage, to engage with you, to engage with your word, to desire to know you, to know more of who you are. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the truth that can be found in it. And I thank you how it encourages us and exhorts us. I thank you for passing over us. I thank you for bringing us into the family. You're a good and awesome God, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and we trust you. In your name, amen.